0: Turn with me in the Sacred Scriptures tonight to the 15th chapter of Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. This, of course, is the classic passage in Scripture on the bodily resurrection of believers. We're going to read beginning at verse 16 of the chapter and through verse 34. My text tonight is verse 29. The Word of God at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 16. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished if in this life only we have hope in Christ we are of all men most miserable but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept for since by man came death by man came also the resurrection Of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God. Even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him and when all things shall be subdued unto him then shall the son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him that God may be all in all else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If after the manner of men, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, What advantageth it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. There ends our reading of the Holy Scripture this evening. May God add his blessing to our reading of his word. I call your attention particularly to verse 29. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for for the dead. We celebrate today the glorious resurrection of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We celebrate His resurrection not merely as His own personal resurrection from the dead, but we celebrate his resurrection as our resurrection, our resurrection in Him. Throughout the chapter, this classic chapter on the bodily resurrection of believers, that connection between Jesus Christ as our head and our representative, and us who are his and who are in him is the basis for everything that he teaches. This is why the denial of the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of believers, which was going on, In Corinth, this is why the denial of our resurrection was principally a denial of Christ's resurrection. Exactly because of that intimate connection between Christ, our head, and we, of whom he is the head as a reformed church we practice baptism for the dead which is the subject of our text for tonight as a reformed church we do not only practice Trinitarian baptism, that is baptism in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. As a Reformed congregation, we do not only practice infant baptism, that is the baptism of the infants of believers on the basis of God's covenant of grace with us and with our children after us. As a Reformed congregation, we do not only practice baptism by sprinkling, sprinkling as a valid mode of baptism which is certainly a distinctive aspect of the Reformed doctrine of baptism, but we also practice baptism for the dead. And if we did not practice baptism for the dead, our practice of baptism would not be wholly in harmony with the word of God. If we did not practice baptism for the dead we would not be in harmony with the revealed will of God in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 29 For in the words of our text we are taught That they who are baptized, really, truly baptized, are baptized for the dead. That's the text. The text is a difficult passage of Holy Scripture, a passage that has perplexed ministers and commentators and Christians for ages. You may be aware of it that this one verse is the basis for the teaching of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, that the vicarious baptism of the living provides salvation for the dead. This is the explanation for their extensive genealogical research. And this explains their willingness to spend vast amounts of time and money tracing back family trees. According to the Mormons, The baptism of living family members has the ability to save dead, unbelieving ancestors. Some Mormons have been baptized 50 or more times. For their dead relatives. This is always done in the secrecy of their temples and by total immersion. What we must see tonight is that this passage of Holy Scripture rightly understood, not only overthrows the practice of the Mormons, but this passage is full of instruction and comfort for the New Testament church of Jesus Christ. It is a passage that offers powerful support for the great truth of the resurrection of the dead. The very truth that the apostle is at pains to defend in this 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. 4. What shall they do who are baptized For the dead, if the dead rise not at all. I call your attention to this word of God under the theme, Baptism for the Dead. Let's notice three things together, asking three questions that develop the truth of God's word in the text. First of all, baptism what what is the baptism that is referred to by the apostle in the text this baptism for the dead secondly baptism how typified in reality the apostle in the text is referring to an old testament type we need to see what that type is and why the apostle is appealing to it. And then finally, baptism with what result. In order to understand what the apostle is referring to in the text when he speaks of being baptized For the dead, we ought to be clear what the apostle is not referring to. Some have suggested that Paul is referring to a pagan practice of baptism, a pagan practice of baptism for the dead, which although he does not approve of he nevertheless appeals to in support of the Christian doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. Even the pagan religions would be his argument then. Even the pagan religions are religions that hold before their adherents the Bodily resurrection of the dead. And the proof of that is that among those pagans, there is a baptism for the dead. Even among them, there is belief in an afterlife. And that belief in the afterlife is the basis for their practice of baptism for the dead. This understanding of the text must be rejected. Nowhere does the Word of God appeal to the teachings or the practices of the pagans as support for Christian doctrine and Christian practice. Nowhere, it's impossible that support from a pagan religion would undergird a Christian doctrine. The Christian religion is not based at all in any respect upon pagan religions, but rejects them and condemns them. Besides, it seems plain that the baptism for the dead, to which the apostle refers in the text, was a baptism that took place not outside of, but among Christians themselves. Others have understood the apostle to be referring in the text to a practice of vicarious baptism for the dead that took place among the Corinthians. How that practice started, where it came from and on what it was based, We're not told, but according to this view, members of the Corinthian congregation were practicing a baptism for the dead. And although, once again, the apostle is not putting his stamp of approval on this practice, he is nevertheless appealing to it in support of the biblical truth of the resurrection of the dead. This understanding of the text must also be rejected. Not only is there absolutely no evidence to indicate that the Corinthians were practicing some sort of baptism for the dead, but if they did... The apostle would certainly not have appealed to it in support of the Christian doctrine of the bodily resurrection, but he would have condemned that practice. And he would have called the Corinthians to put an end to that practice and to repent of that wrong worship of God. Others interpret baptism in the text symbolically and metaphorically. They suppose that by baptism the apostle is not talking about physical water baptism. Water being sprinkled or poured upon somebody, but instead he is symbolically referring to death, to death. And that would be similar to what Jesus says, you may recall in Mark 10, verse 38, when he says to his disciples, ye know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I Drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. Clearly, there the Lord Jesus is referring to his death. That's the drinking of the cup, that's the baptism with which he would be baptized. Obviously, there is reference in those two statements to the two sacraments in the Christian Church, the Lord's Supper and baptism, both of which point believers to the death of our Lord Jesus Christ as the only ground for our salvation and for the washing away of all our sins. But this explanation, too, is unsatisfactory. For one thing, there's absolutely no indication in the passage that the apostle is referring to death. Death, especially those who promote This view of the text of martyrs, especially the martyrs, by their martyrdom, were participating in the same baptism with which Jesus was baptized, his death. But there's no evidence that the apostle has the martyrs in mind. And for another thing, the apostle does not speak of being baptized into or unto the dead, which is the case when Jesus speaks in Mark 10, verse 38, which would then be the case if he was referring to the martyrs but he doesn't say baptized into or unto death or the dead but he speaks of being baptized for that is on behalf of because of being baptized in that sense for The dead. Still, others have understood the apostle to be teaching that Christians are baptized with a view to their own death. Now, there's truth in that understanding of the apostle's teaching in the text, as we'll see in just a moment. That belongs to the significance of baptism. That our baptism, many of us, as infants, is a baptism with a view to our own death, to the life and hope that we have as those who are baptized. But this is not first of all, what the Apostle is speaking of in the text. But the Apostle has in mind a powerful proof for the doctrine of the bodily resurrection of believers. That's the point of the text. And the text itself makes that plain for, first of all, The apostle does not speak of death in the text, but he speaks of the dead in the original, the dead ones, in the plural. In the second place, and this is striking, and this is a key to a proper understanding of the text, significantly, the apostle excludes himself excludes himself and his Corinthian readers, the ones to whom he directs this epistle when he speaks of the baptism for the dead. And that's striking. In the text, the apostle mentions another group of people who practiced this baptism for the dead. Paul says Else what shall they, not we, but what shall they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they, they then, again, not we, baptized for the dead? The apostle doesn't include himself. And he doesn't include the Corinthians as being directly involved in this baptism for the dead. If the reference was, first of all, to the Corinthian Christians themselves being baptized with a view to their own death, the apostle wouldn't have excluded himself or excluded them in the language of the text. This fact, by the way, all by itself is the refutation of the Mormons and their corruption of this Word of God. The Mormons ought not to chide us for failing to maintain a biblical truth with regard to baptism, but the Mormons ought to read 1 Corinthians 15, verse 29, And they ought to read it carefully. And then the Mormons ought to explain why Paul does not include himself and doesn't include the Corinthians in this baptism for the dead that he's talking about in the text. And that fact all by itself abolishes the Mormon misinterpretation of this word of God. Before we consider what exactly is the apostle's teaching in the text, what he is referring to when he speaks of being baptized for the dead, we ought to notice the place that the text has in the whole of this long chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, this long chapter on the bodily resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle is defending the truth of the resurrection of believers from the dead. Our bodies are going to be raised up one day and participate perfectly in the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. That truth was denied That truth was brought into serious question in the Corinthian congregation. This old body, this bag of bones is nothing but sin, and it's disgusting, and we need to be rid of it. And when we die, we're finally rid of it and liberated from it, as though there's something inherently evil in that which is body, flesh and blood, and bones throughout the chapter, the apostle is reasoning very carefully, consistently, coherently, the truth of the resurrection of our bodies. In 1 Corinthians 15, Verses 29, our text, through verse 32, the apostle asks several rhetorical questions. A rhetorical question has an obvious answer. A rhetorical question, the answer is always known by the one who asks the question as well as those to whom he puts the question. And a rhetorical question always has the purpose of emphasizing something. That's going on in this section with which our text begins, a series of rhetorical questions that demonstrate the utter absurdity of denying the bodily resurrection of believers if there is no resurrection of the dead then what would they have accomplished who were baptized for the dead our text if there is no bodily resurrection Why do Christians then endanger their lives for the faith? The apostle himself putting his life on the line. Why would they do that if there's no possibility of the resurrection of our bodies? That's the meaning of verse 30. And now, notice that the apostle does very definitely Include himself. If there is no resurrection of the dead, why do I, Paul, willingly face all of the dangers of my missionary travels? Why did I fight with wild beasts at Ephesus, facing the very real prospect of being consumed And destroyed by those wild beasts. Verse 32. And if there is no resurrection of the dead. Why not adopt the attitude of the children of this world. Let us eat and drink and be merry. For tomorrow we die. Verse 32. And that's the end of it. We die like dogs. After death there's nothing. The teaching of evolution. Verse 29, then, our text begins this series of questions. And it begins this series of questions by asking about baptism for the dead. And it's a powerful link in the apostles' determination. To demonstrate the necessity of the resurrection of our bodies. All right then. What's he talking about in the text? We're helped in our understanding of the text by what we read in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 10. In understanding 1 Corinthians 15, verse 29, it's absolutely necessary that we compare Scripture with Scripture. Interpret Scripture in the light of the rest of Scripture, a fundamental reform principle of biblical interpretation. By comparing 1 Corinthians 15, verse 29, with Hebrews 9, verse 10, we're helped in understanding what the Apostle is referring to by baptism for the dead. Here's Hebrews 9, verse 10, which stood, the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews is talking about Old Testament, Old Testament practices, Old Testament ceremonial laws, which stood only, In meats and drinks, and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. In the context of Hebrews 9, verse 10, the writer of the Epistle to the Hebrews is discussing the imperfections of the Old Testament system of worship, which imperfections pointed ahead to Christ. And to the necessity of the saving work of Christ. Those Old Testament ordinances were inadequate. And they all called for the coming of Jesus Christ. Because the Old Testament system of worship could not save men. Those carnal, that is those fleshly, ceremonial ordinances, all of those sacrifices. They were only temporary. They couldn't take away a single sin. They applied only so long as the Old Testament dispensation was in place. The dispensation of types and shadows. They all pointed ahead to Jesus Christ and to the saving work of Jesus Christ. And among those temporary, ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews speaks of diverse, many, many different kinds of washings. Diverse washings. But very strikingly, in the Greek of Hebrews 9 verse 10, The passage speaks not just of diverse washings, but of diverse baptisms. That's what you read in Hebrews 9, verse 10, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse baptisms and carnal ordinances. By baptisms, the writer is referring to all the ceremonial cleansings of the Old Testament. He's referring to all of the ceremonial cleansings that purified those who became ceremonially unclean for whatever reason, whatever may have been the occasion for their becoming unclean. They were cleansed. They were sprinkled with water by the priests. He calls those baptisms and those Old Testament cleansings or baptisms actually prefigured the reality of the cleansing of the blood of Jesus Christ. All those Old Testament cleansings were baptisms, cleansings that prefigure the great cleansing, the cleansing that took away the necessity of all those other cleansings, those diverse cleansings, the cleansing of the blood, of Jesus Christ, which is now the reality pointed to by New Testament baptism. It is one of those Old Testament cleansings or washings or baptisms that the apostle has in mind in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 29. Paul, in that verse, is making reference to a particular Old Testament ceremonial cleansing that he calls baptism for the dead. That explains, too, why the Apostle excuses himself and the Corinthians from observing this ceremonial ordinance because it belonged to the Old Testament. It belonged to the period of the types and the shadows. The Apostle and the Corinthian believers Belong to the New Testament age. All those diverse washings, those baptisms, they've all been done away with. At the same time, the apostles' appeal to that Old Testament cleansing ceremony was legitimate in order to prove the truth of the resurrection. Paul does that repeatedly in his epistles. Refers to an Old Testament practice, an Old Testament ceremony, circumcision, Passover, in order To demonstrate the truth of the gospel of the New Testament. For as the Belgic Confession states in Article 25, although those figures and ceremonies are dispensed with, have ceased since the coming of Christ, nevertheless... The truth of them, the substance of them, remains so as to confirm the gospel of the New Testament. That being said, what specifically is the Old Testament? type, the Old Testament type that the Apostle is talking about, the specific baptism. He's talking about the baptism of Numbers 19, verses 11 through 13. That's the specific reference in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 29, let me read. Numbers 19, 11 through 13. He that toucheth a dead body of any man shall be unclean seven days. He shall purify himself with it on the third day and... On the seventh day he shall be clean. But if he purify not himself the third day, then the seventh day he shall not be clean. Whosoever toucheth the dead body of any man that is dead, and purifieth not himself, defileth the tabernacle of Of the Lord, and that soul shall be cut off from Israel because the water of separation was not sprinkled upon him. He shall be unclean, his uncleanness is yet upon him. The baptism for or because of the dead, that the Apostle is speaking of in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 29, is the ceremonial cleansing of Numbers 19, 11 through 13. According to Old Testament, ceremonial law, death, was defilement for the children of Israel. Anybody who came in contact with a dead body, in some way or other touched that dead body, defiled themselves. And because of that defilement, they were rendered ceremonially, Unclean, They mightn't participate in the public worship of the gathered congregation. They mightn't come into the tabernacle of the Lord. They had first, first, to be cleansed. The water, the sprinkling of the water of cleansing by the priest had to be applied to them. In fact, the law of God in Numbers 19 taught that mere contact with those things that had touched the dead, a garment that they may have been wearing, something that came into contact inadvertently with the dead body while it was being moved whatever touched the dead person was defiled by death and to whomever it belonged they were defiled and they were unfit To participate in the worship of God. Such contact indicated that that person lived in a world under the curse. A world under the curse of death because of sin. Only the Lord Jesus could come into contact with death. And not be defiled by that death. He has the power of life. Life that overcomes death. And the defilement of death. But sinners. Sinners are defiled. Even by contact with the dead. And they're subject to the curse of death. God is a holy God. He's separate from sin and the sinner. A holy God can never have sin in His presence. Nor even the evidence of sin. Sin's consequence in death. The Holy God simply will not have in His presence a stinking, rotting corpse. He will not even tolerate the smell of death in His presence through contact with the dead. Everything connected to death, to the defilement of death, Everything that's part of the curse of God must be thoroughly cleansed in order to enter into the presence of the high and holy God. So what was the Old Testament remedy for those who became defiled by death? What did they have to do The remedy stipulated in the law of God in Numbers was that the unclean person had to go before the priest, reveal the cause of his defilement, be sprinkled by the priest with the water of cleansing on the third and on the seventh days. It's this ceremonial cleansing. This sprinkling by the priests that Paul is referring to when he speaks in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 29 of baptism for the dead. He's referring to the practice of the children of Israel according to the law of God in the Old Testament, a practice that gave powerful testimony to the hope of the people of God, the hope of the resurrection. Out of which the Old Testament saints lived as much as we, New Testament believers. There was a remedy. There was a cleansing. Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 29 is simply this. What would have been accomplished by that Old Testament ceremony if there is no resurrection of the dead? What would be the point? What would have been accomplished by the ceremony if there's no reality? To which the ceremony points. Without the resurrection. The removal. Of death defilement. Could never be achieved. And thus the picture. Of the pre sprinkling. Water. Upon the person defiled by contact with the dead. Would be meaningless. Altogether meaningless. An empty ceremony. With no real significance. If there is no resurrection of the dead. The water of cleansing in Numbers 19 is a type of the resurrection. Contact with the dead, defiled the living. But that defilement, which made them unfit to approach God, was removed by the sprinkling, the baptism for the dead. And so that ceremony of sprinkling spoke of the remedy to the defilement of death, which remedy is the resurrection. In a powerful way, that Old Testament ceremony taught the children of Israel to hope in the resurrection. Now Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 29 becomes clear. If the reality is denied, the resurrection of believers, if that reality is denied, then what were the Jews doing in the Old Testament in that baptism for the dead? If the reality, the resurrection of believers is a lie, then baptism for the dead was a foolish and a senseless practice. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then it would not have been possible for that Old Testament ceremonial law to picture the cleansing of death's defilement without the resurrection. That Old Testament law would have been a lie. For it would have taught the people of the hope, of the removal, of the power of death, the stench of death, when ultimately it wasn't removed. But of course, that Old Testament law could not lie because that Old Testament law was the Word of God. God, in that Old Testament ceremonial law, God preached the gospel to the Old Testament saints. God pointed them to a remedy. Death was not the end. The defilement of death did not have the last word. Paul insists in 1 Corinthians 15 that the Old Testament practice demands the reality of the resurrection. Just a couple of things worth noting. In the first place, there's instruction in that Old Testament type of baptism with regard to the proper mode of baptism that is sprinkling. The Old Testament cleansing by the priests that is referred to both in our text and in Hebrews is called a baptism, but it was a baptism. Not by total immersion, but by sprinkling. In the second place, it's worth noting that the law of Numbers 19 provided for a two-stage deliverance from the defilement of death. Did you catch that when we read it? Did you catch that? The unclean person was sprinkled, not once but twice. He was sprinkled first on the third day, the day of Christ's resurrection. But he was not finished with the Old Testament law. He was not, therefore, cleansed from the defilement of death until the seventh day the number seven is the number of God's covenant, the number of the fulfillment and perfection of God's covenant, the two-stage cleansing from the defilement of death by the Old Testament cleansing on the third day of And on the seventh day pointed not only to Christ's resurrection from the dead, but pointed to the completion and consummation of God's covenant when the risen Savior would come again. The type beautifully points to the saving work of Jesus Christ, principally accomplished in his resurrection the third day, but ultimately accomplished. When he comes again at the end of the ages and raises us up out of the dust of death, out of the graves, in which we're all going to be buried one day. But Christ's resurrection, the third day, that's only the beginning, that's only the first fruits, that's only the initial phase of the completed harvest of the resurrection that is to follow. The Old Testament ceremonial law spoke beautifully of the second coming of Jesus Christ and the final resurrection of believers. With what result? What was the result of this baptism for the dead? There is a blessed result both for the Old Testament saints and for us today. For the Old Testament type of baptism for the dead is fulfilled in the New Testament cleansing of the blood of Jesus Christ which cleansing is typified in New Testament baptism. The baptism that we And our children have received the sprinkling with the water of baptism for us, too, was a baptism for the dead. First of all, the result for us is the same that it was for the Old Testament saints. We're cleansed. We're cleansed. From the power of death. Our baptism speaks of that. Our own baptism testifies to that. It points to the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ over death. We too are baptized for the death. And that means that we're cleansed. Cleansed from all the defilement of death. Death's corruption is removed from us. And what that means is that we may approach God. We may come into God's presence. We may take up the worship, the public worship of God. More than that, it speaks to us of the hope of life eternal. We have that for ourselves. We have that for our children, also for our children who die in their infancy. We give expression to the hope that we have in the administration of the sacrament of baptism. And when, as parents, believing parents, we present our children for baptism, we give expression to our hope. Of that hope, baptism is a sign and a seal. And one of the first fruits of the administration of baptism is that we are confirmed and we are strengthened as a congregation in the hope of the resurrection. Every time the sacrament of baptism is administered in this congregation, there is a cleansing from death defilement. And that points us to the resurrection. In the second place, death is more than physical death, though, it's eternal death in hell. Death is also spiritual death, the decay. The stinking, rotten corruption of sin. That's death. From that death too, we believers have been delivered. Cleansed from the defilement of that death. And of that too, our baptism is a sign and seal. And the application, live. Live now. Live in holiness of life. Live as those who have been cleansed. Live in such a way that you live in His presence. That you approach Him and stand before Him. Separate yourselves from the death and the corruption of death in the wicked world in which We are called to live. That's verse 34, the immediate application, awake to righteousness and sin, not. Come out of that world, lest you die its death. Don't touch that which is defiled by their death, lest you become defiled. Since you have been cleansed, walk in such a way that you keep yourself unspotted from the corrupt world in which we live. You have been baptized. And your baptism was a baptism for the dead. Live now. Live unto God. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank Thee for the beauty and for the power of Thy Word. Bless Thy Word unto our hearts as we've heard it tonight. And in the midst of the death and decay that we see all around us and feel within our own selves, give us the hope of deliverance from death in our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.